Thank you very much, uh, Professor Kuma. That, that's a, it's an excellent introduction, and, uh, and it really does highlight one of the big changes in, in Japan itself, and, I, and I'll be talking about that in a few minutes. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak here tonight. Uh, I am a historian of Japan, and, and all my previous books have been exclusively on Japan, uh, but in this case, I've tried to do something a little different. Uh, I've written uh, what's called a transnational or global history of saving, uh, and it covers not only Japan, but several European cases, including Germany, as you'll see, uh, the United States, obviously, from the title, uh, but also some other Asian countries, uh, South Korea and Malaysia and China. And when I began this project, uh, I will, must confess, saving money was not exactly a sexy topic, and it was difficult to get people interested in it. Uh, and then came the global financial crisis, which, as most of you know, was really precipitated by events in the United States uh, within the household economy. And it became painfully obvious uh, that saving money uh, was interesting, maybe exciting, maybe too exciting, uh, because it's become painfully clear that millions and millions of Americans lack the basic saving uh, to cope with life's various emergencies, whether it's the loss of job or medical emergencies uh, or uh, home foreclosures or the prospect of very uncomfortable retirements because of lack of saving. And a recent survey in the United States uh, found that something like 43% of all households in America have little or no saving, and that's been also confirmed by a recent survey by the Federal Reserve. So this book is really has two parts to it. Uh, one is uh, the history of how Americans came to be such miserable savers, uh, but it also tells a more global story about how many other nations, East and West, learned how to save and adopt a somewhat more balanced approaches uh, to the choices between saving and spending. Uh, now it's well known, as we, we just heard, that uh, Japanese, Chinese, and other East Asians are considered to be very high savers, very thrifty. Uh, when we had to explain why East Asians save so much money, uh, we tended to rely on a cultural explanation. Uh, it was because, well, if, it depended where you were. If you were in Japan, it was because the Japanese had beautiful customs of diligence and thrift. Uh, if you were in the rest of East Asia, it was about Confucianism. If you were in Southeast Asia, it was about Confucianism plus, or what became known as Asian values. And for those of you who can remember all the way back to the 1970s, uh, that's when Japan had the world's highest savings rates of something like 23%. This is household saving rates, 23% of household disposable income. Now the Chinese hold this record. Uh, nobody knows exactly what the Chinese savings rate is, but something like 26%. Uh, so we tended to dismiss this or explain that there's something rather abnormal about East Asians because they save a lot and because they have something called culture. Uh, the problem with using an exclusively cultural explanation, though, is looking at cross-national data on household savings uh, today and over the last 30 years, and uh, some actually surprising results appear, uh, maybe not so surprising to those of you who are from Germany, uh, but surprising to those of us who are from the United States or Japan or other places, uh, namely uh, that uh, some of the highest savers in the world now are, are not in East Asia. Japan, as we've just learned, has actually come down considerably, uh, actually less than the United States today. Uh, but the high savers, the ones that really remain high savers, a lot of them are located in continental Europe in the, some of the core economies. Obviously, Germany, France, uh, you can see Sweden as well. Uh, you could add smaller countries like Belgium and Austria. Uh, they've all, over the past 30 years, more or less held constant at household savings rates that are 10% and above. Uh, so this is, this is a real problem because how do we explain how both Europeans and East Asians have had long histories of high saving. And when we start to ask that question, uh, we start to realize uh, that, that Americans might not actually be the norm at all, but might be the great exception in this story. So this is, in a sense, what the book is about. Uh, it's also the book is a challenge to economists, uh, because economists, when they've tried to explain international savings patterns, uh, they have tended to give us explanations that aren't actually very effective in explaining some of the European patterns that we see. 
Uh, it's standard in American economics departments when they talk about saving to, to use a, a well-known uh, model from the 1970s that says that there is a, an inverse relationship uh, between welfare states and saving. And the theory in American, among American economists goes that, um, that if you have a generous national pension system and other social benefits from the state, that this is going to discourage people from saving because they know they're going to be able to get these benefits. Well, um, I think most of us would probably agree that Germany, France, Sweden, these are, these are actually very strong welfare states. How, how is it that strong welfare states actually have high savings? It's exactly the opposite of what American economists have been telling us. So as my explanation in the book for why we see these interesting patterns, why Europeans and East Asians historically have saved, um, I tend to look much more at the institutional promotion of saving. Uh, of what, and I'm talking about saving here, I'm talking about what's called small savers. Uh, these are not large investors, but that over the past two, a century or two in Europe and in Japan, there have been vigorous institutional attempts to promote saving. And I think that these are a big part of the explanation on why we see very different patterns in the world uh, with regard to saving, spending, and borrowing. Uh, and it's not only institutions, but also Europeans and Japanese, as you're going to see, historically have often used moral suasion, campaigns, things in school. And these, I think, also have been an important part of the story. Uh, so in, in the book's uh, 12 chapters or so, I go through these, these histories in great detail. Uh, in the various parts of the world. But allow me to summarize here some of the institutions that have tended to promote small saving at, over the last century or two in Japan and Europe. And one of the first institutions that did this is one that if there are Germans in the audience, you'll be very familiar with, the Savings Bank, or in, 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 in German, uh, the Sparkasse. Uh, the savings banks were actually a huge global transnational movement, a social, really a social reform movement that starts uh, around 1800 in some German and Swiss cities even before 1800. And the idea behind the savings bank was social reformers and various civic elites around 1800 uh, decided, and decided transnationally because it spread from country to country, that it was actually very important to a society and a political system that ordinary people save and that they save in banks or other types of financial institutions. The thinking that really starts, it's, in a sense, it's a part of modern citizenship. Uh, elites and social reformers around 1800 agreed that if ordinary people, the working poor, could have a savings account, that this would allow them to have more control over their lives and this would uh, lessen their burden on society. They would not rely on poor relief. They would be less likely to turn to crime. Uh, later as the 19th century went on, the thinking was they'd also be less likely to turn to revolution if they had what was considered a financial stake in society, a bank account, in other words. So these savings banks spread all over the place. Uh, they were originally philanthropic and civic, very much civic in, in, in German cities. Uh, they were, in a sense, not financial institutions. They were social institutions. Um, they, in a sense, subsidized savings accounts for the working poor by uh, usually philanthropists and civic leaders contributing a certain amount of money so that, that these savings banks could take very small accounts of the working poor, allow the working poor to regularly save, and also uh, pay interest on the savings accounts. And this, too, was a very modern concept that really wasn't there before 1800. So ordinary people, not, not just merchants and, and kings, would now have accounts in banks. So that was the savings uh, bank. And what's interesting about this poster I have here from England in the mid-19th century uh, is something that may be familiar to us in Japanese studies. You also are beginning to see a gendered um, a differentiation in terms of who the saver is in the family. So what this poster says, it's the man speaking. He says, it's my industry, in other words, my diligence, my hard work, and her saving. So what we're seeing here, this is Victorian England. You're seeing the beginnings of, of not only are getting the working poor to save, but you're also starting to construct the role of the housewife, the woman in the family, in the middle class family in this case, who would be in charge of family finances and would be in charge 
of the saving. And you can see how this is later going to influence Japan. So the savings bank was really the first stage in this institutional promotion of saving that just spread from country to country in Europe to North America to places like Australia and New Zealand. The second phase of the promotion of saving is one that as Japan specialists we're more familiar with. This is the postal saving system. And this originates, I mean, most Americans assume that, you know, postal saving, you know, originated sometime around Jimu Tenno, uh, that it's some exclusively uniquely Japanese institution. Uh, most Americans are not aware that there are actually postal savings banks in much of the rest of the world. Uh, but I'll talk more about that later. Uh, but as many of you know, uh, postal savings uh, is not actually a Japanese invention at all. It's a British invention. Uh, 1861 was the world's first post office savings bank. Uh, it was passed by Parliament. Uh, it went into effect in 1861. Uh, it then actually spread quite rapidly across Europe in the 1870s and 1880s. And one of the places that it spread most rapidly to was Japan. Right after the Meiji Restoration of 1868, Japan actually became the third independent nation in the world, it wasn't in the British Empire, the third nation in the world to adopt postal savings. And so it was sort of these enlightened Meiji bureaucrats, uh, one of whom had actually traveled to Britain and had seen the Post Office Savings Bank. Well, um, so what is a postal savings bank? Well, uh, probably most of you in this room know what it is. Uh, but again, if it were an American audience, I would have to explain this. Uh, but clearly, it's, a, it's, it's one more step beyond the savings bank, which had been local affairs, sometimes private affairs. The postal savings system involves the direct intervention of the central state uh, through the post office. Uh, it actually improves quite a bit uh, on the savings bank because a postal savings system uh, grants almost universal access. One of the most attractive features of a postal savings system is that there are post offices everywhere. And this is in the latter half of the 19th century at a time when Japan, European states, even the United States was rapidly expanding post offices. So most people were never more than a few kilometers away from a post office. Uh, so they could use the post office as a bank. So access was very important. If you want ordinary people to save, you have to make it accessible. Another attractive aspect of the postal saving system uh, was security. Um, one of the reasons why ordinary people den didn't tend to uh, save in banks uh, before the middle of the 19th century is a question of trust. Uh, you could, you're giving your money to somebody you don't know. Uh, a lot of savings banks, a lot of ordinary banks uh, failed in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, postal savings systems solve that problem because the national government, the central state, guarantees everything. And one other attractive feature of a postal saving system was that it became efficient to take very small deposits. So if you want people to save, you have to be willing to take small deposits. Uh, so postal saving systems were very attractive, uh, and they enrolled millions of people all over Europe and, and in, in Japan. We know the story. Uh, Japan started their system in 1875 but expanded it so rapidly that by the 1930s it was the world's largest postal system. And today if we know the, the story. Um, we, we can talk about the politics of it, but the Japanese postal saving system is not only the largest postal saving system, it's the world's largest bank in terms of assets. Maybe it grew too much, uh, but this is the story that starts from the late 19th century. And one other thing to, to be said is, you know, lest we think that postal savings is something that just the Japanese excel in. Um, it's really interesting to look at the architecture of uh, the headquarters of postal saving systems, uh, particularly in Central Europe. Uh, some of you may have been to Vienna, uh, and uh, if you had, uh, the, the, one, the postal savings banks in Central Europe are really stunning in terms of their architecture. Uh, and it really shows by 1900, you know, the resources and, and the cultural symbolism that, that states were attaching to postal savings. They saw it as a leading form of social policy, and, and in other words, getting working people to save. This is the Vienna uh, Postsparkasse, the postal savings bank. Uh, it's a stunning building uh, built by the modernist architect Otto Wagner. 
Wagner. If you go to Budapest, there's an even more interesting uh, Royal Postal Savings uh, Bank that's uh, done in, in sort of the Central European Art Nouveau and, and is also, I mean, it's fanciful, but it's, it's richly resourced. And it, it's, it just gives you a sense of how important postal savings was in the world about 100 years ago. So that was the second way that institutions were created to promote saving. Uh, and a third way is, let's see, is the school, the school savings bank. And this comes in in the late 19th century, just about the same time as the postal savings bank, and also involves government initiative. And the theory behind the school savings bank is very simple, uh, that if you really want to cultivate uh, habits of thrift and saving and, and prudence in, in, your, in your society, you start with the young, the future adults. Uh, some of the first nationwide school saving systems uh, were in Belgium, uh, starting in the 1860s, the French in the 1870s with their, their, their vast uh, centralized educational system really promoted school savings. Uh, in, in German towns and cities, you would have also seen them almost everywhere. Uh, and here, too, Japan was a very fast learner. By the 1890s, they had adopted various Belgian and French forms of school savings on a nationwide basis. Uh, this is a poster from the 1930s, but by 1900, uh, Japan had one of the highest proportions of school children enrolled in school savings banks. And what a school savings bank looked like is, is this. Um, and, you know, we sometimes we, 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 we take for granted some of the mundane aspects of daily life uh, in terms of global history, but one of the most global moments in the world in the early 20th century would have been on Monday morning. And you could have been in Munich, and you could have been in Melbourne, Australia, and you could have been in Manchester, England, and you could have been, you'll see in a few minutes, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the United States. And everywhere, you would have seen the same sort of iconography. You would have seen children bringing in their small coins on Monday morning, giving them either to their teacher or a postal bank of, uh, employee or a savings bank employee, and then it would be stored in, their, in the, the student's individual account. And this was extremely important in terms of molding habits for millions and millions of children all around the world, um, including Japan, obviously, as you've seen. Um, well, uh, the next phase of savings promotion came during the two world wars. And here is when saving, in a sense, um, added a new meaning. I mean, in the 19th century, the exhortations for people to save had been that it would be good for the, the individual, it would be good for society. But with World War I, governments realized that they were in protracted wars that um, demanded enormous financial resources and that taxation was not enough, uh, that they would, uh, and, and, and getting loans from merchant banks was not enough, uh, they would have to get mass, the mass savings of their society, mobilize that savings in, in order uh, to advance national survival and to win wars. So you had these, these massive savings campaigns in the two world wars, and it's very transnational. Um, the 19th century story promoting saving had been global and transnational, but there's nothing like war to increase uh, transnational learning because you're engaged in wars and you, you want to make sure that you're competing with your adversary, that if they've found ways of promoting and propagandizing saving, that you want to study their techniques as quickly as possible. And you're studying your enemy and you're studying your allies. And in this case, these are two allies studying each other. Uh, you can see that they put out identical posters. Posters become this very major form of mass persuasion. Uh, by World War I that not only companies use to advertise, but that states use in order to mobilize. And you can see um, both the British and the Americans basically come up with the same poster, and it's not a coincidence. The whole point is you see, if you start looking at images, how much images and how much posters are transferring. In this case, it was actually the British who had been in the war a long time, but who actually copied a poster from the United States in part because Joan of Arc is not actually a very good symbol for English nationhood. Um, but, um, but they took it from the Americans nonetheless. Um, and what's also interesting, I should say one more thing about this, the use of women. 
you know, we saw this a little bit in the 19th century, but by the two world wars, women become the focus of savings campaigns. Women are seen as the savers and the consumers on the home front, and it's important to appeal to them. And you see this message coming to Japan, um, not so much during World War I, because J Japan had a very, very minimal role in World War I, but actually during peacetime in the 1920s, Japanese government, various ministries, systematically study how, um, how Western powers had mobilized their societies during World War I. The Japanese are anticipating the next war, and it's going to be a total war. Um, the Japanese believe this. Everybody believes this. And so the Japanese are preparing and very much looking at Western propaganda. Uh, and, and in fact, the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs accumulates a large number of posters and other um, uh, placards and, and messages from the Western powers during the war. And then they actually begin to, um, to, to emulate some of these posters and some of these campaigns in the 1920s and then, of course, during World War II. But the gender aspect is very interesting because you see here that the image of the woman as the mother and the saver on the home front in this Japanese image is very directly emulated from what the Japanese picked up on in World War I among the Western powers. Now, you might think the Japanese housewife has all, always been there, that there's always been this person who takes the husband's paycheck and then, you know, saves the rest and gives them a little money. But this is actually, the housewife is a very new institution in 20th century Japan. There would have been very few women in 1900 in Japan who would have been in charge of family finances. That was something that the household had, the patriarch did. So in a sense, Japanese in the 1920s and 30s have been very much influenced by what they see in the West, and not just in war campaigns, but they're, they're looking at housewives can, uh, magazines um, in the West, and, and a whole housewives culture develops, and it's basically urban, middle-class people at first, but it gradually spreads by the 1930s, so that increasingly savings campaigns by the 1930s and World War II in Japan become very heavily focused on the woman as the saver, the person who is on the home front, and it's something, again, that I'm, I'm suggesting is very transnational. It's not simply indigenously Japanese. Now, when we get to World War II, of course, their savings campaigns build even more elaborate than they were before. Um, this is uh, actually said to be the most popular uh, British poster during World War II. It's a, it's a creature of vermin called the squanderbug. Uh, it's, uh, and if you read it, uh, it's basically about economizing. And it's an exhortation to the British people uh, that if they don't want to be Hitler's pal here, uh, if they don't want to be working for the Nazis, you shouldn't be squandering. You shouldn't be wasting your money. You shouldn't be committing the crime at the bottom of the shopper's disease. Uh, instead, you should be economizing and use what you economize to contribute to your savings, which then, of course, finances the war effort. And it's a sort of message that you see in just all the belligerents during that time economizing and saving. Uh, and you see many other messages that, again, Japan is very much a part of this world. It's not just that Japan is copying, it's that everybody, all the belligerents, all the powers that are fighting the war are learning from each other in terms of promoting saving and, and in general, mobilizing their civilians. And so you see, you see in all the societies, I could have shown you Russian posters, Italian posters, German posters, you see the appeal to the working man with a very similar kind of a socialist, realist edge to it. Um, but there's a reason for this. Because in, a, in, a, in situations of labor shortages, uh, working men are commanding higher salaries, those who have not been mobilized and conscripted, uh, and all states uh, want to capture the increased work uh, income of working people. So thus, you see that sort of message. And another common message you see uh, is the use of women not only to be the savers, but the use, the use of women to be the people, the leaders at, local, at the local level who exhort other women and other Japanese families to save. So the idea of the woman activist is something that you see in Japan and elsewhere uh, during World War II, very pronounced. 
You can see this in, in the Japanese poster, uh, which is actually before the Pacific War when Japan is, is engaged in the China War. Um, the woman here would be the, the local leader of a, a Fujinkai, a women's association, or the National Defense uh, uh, Women's Association, or something comparable, wearing this, this, this uniform of the white apron. Uh, but her job was to go around the village or the urban neighborhood and to knock on doors and to basically exhort and pressure uh, families to contribute more and more of their savings to the war effort. Uh, but it's not exclusively Japanese by any means. You would have seen that sort of woman in all the warring societies, and that's why I show the British poster on the right. It's actually just a few months after the end of the war, but uh, you would have seen the same poster during the war. Uh, she's called a savings worker or a national savings worker. This is the woman in green. And her role is exactly the same as the Japanese woman. Uh, she goes door to door. Uh, in this case, the British people look very happy to see her. In reality, they would have hated her because she's interventionist. She's what we call the busybody. Uh, she's the person who knows everybody's secret lives and, and knows if they have more money than they say they do, and she puts pressure on them to buy what are called in Britain national saving certificates. So you see, again, this is a very global thing, uh, and it's not a coincidence. They've all learned the lessons of World War I when a lot of these mechanisms begin to develop. Uh, well, we get to the post-war period after 1945, and what happens then in terms of saving, austerity, economizing? Well, in the Japanese case, uh, the war might end in August 1945, but these mobilization and savings and austerity campaigns continue uh, as if the war is still on. So in the post-war period, uh, the Japanese Ministry of Finance and Bank of Japan immediately begin to mount a new type of campaign. It's no longer to finance the war, but it's to finance Japanese recovery. And you can see, those of you who read Japanese, it's called the National um, Salvation Savings uh, Movement, the Kyukoku Chochiku Undo. Uh, so it's a very emotional term that you're saving now for national salvation. Uh, for national recovery. And when I first saw these campaigns in the Japanese case, I assumed that this was a, an exceptionally Japanese story, that, uh, that the Japanese are just, you know, they were crazy about saving, and even though the war had ended, these, these very oppressive um, interventionist campaigns continue. But then, uh, when I started reading the Japanese documents, it became very clear uh, Japanese Ministry of Finance officials would say, well, there's nothing we're doing that's exceptional at all, that these are the trends of the world, that all over uh, Europe, whether nations won, like Britain, or lost, like Germany, they're all engaged in austerity and savings campaigns uh, so that they can recover. And indeed, um, this was true. Uh, and if you looked at, I mean, I start with Britain right after the war, uh, but the war may have ended. Uh, but in the British case, the British government continued to mount what were called the keep on saving campaigns. And you can see the poster on the right. It's done in the summer of 1945. The Japanese remained to be defeated. So you, you keep on saving for the final victory, but you also keep on saving for not only national recovery, but if you see the blueprint there, uh, for the needs of the emerging welfare state which is going to require taxation, but also the massive use of savings. So you see things like education, housing, and health. And this is the story not only in Britain, obviously, but it's all over Europe, uh, where austerity and savings campaigns are continued to be seen as vital. So you see this in the French case with you know, Reconstruction. You see it in the Italian case. Um, and you could see it everywhere. You would see it, in, in obviously, in the two Germanies as well. Uh, so this is a very, again, a very global term, uh, global um, development, except for one country, as you're going to see, and then that's my own country, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so that everywhere um, you're seeing saving and austerity. And it's interesting, you know, Americans do not understand this term austerity. And, uh, you know, which is, is, is popular in Britain to some extent, very popular in Germany. And, but, you know, what Americans don't understand is, is this term has a history to it. And, and the history is particularly the immediate post-war period uh, when it was not consumption in the European and Japanese case that financed recovery, uh, but it was saving 
and economizing. Uh, well, um, even though the war, uh, the post-war uh, campaigns will begin to decline by the middle of the 1950s and consumption will come back in, in Japan and Europe, um, even though that happens, and you don't have, in Europe, you don't have really direct savings campaigns past probably the late 1950s, in many ways, um, continental European governments continue uh, to promote saving in various institutional ways. And I just mentioned a couple examples. Uh, in France, for example, uh, postal savings is still very big. Postal savings has not been privatized at all. There's also things in, called savings banks in France, which are directly linked uh, to the government. Uh, so the government promotion of, of saving continues. Um, there's a special type of savings account, if any of you have lived in France, called the Livret A, or the A savings account. Uh, it was actually started in 1818, but it is still going strong today. It's a small savers account. It's tax exempt. It has a tiny minimum balance requirement. It has no fees attached to it. When I describe this to American bankers, they're sickened because uh, they, they, they like savings accounts with high fees that drive away poor people. Um, but this is uh, in, in France and elsewhere. Uh, there is a term financial inclusion with very active policies behind it. Uh, the German case. Um, there, is, there is certainly government intervention, but you also have a very dense network of local banks, you know, particularly the Sparkassen, uh, the savings banks, and you find them in every German town and city uh, with numerous branches, uh, very accessible to young people, very accessible to lower income people. Uh, and another way that savings is promoted, those of you who've grown up in Germany, you know what this is, right? What is it? Knacks, right? Okay, um, uh, which is a comic book uh, for young people that's put out by uh, the German savings banks, but also was actually published, I think, in some of the Scandinavian countries and Austria. It's said to be the most widely circulated comic book in continental Europe. Uh, but we're, we're, again, we're talking about continuation of school savings programs, of youth uh, savings accounts, uh, which is very popular um, in Germany, in France, uh, and in Japan. And, and, and many other countries. Uh, there continued uh, not so much school savings anymore, but these broad-based financial education courses. And these, too, in a sense, tend to promote saving. Uh, well, back to the Japanese case. While the Europeans really stopped most of their direct savings campaigns by the late 1950s, uh, in the Japanese case, uh, you had centrally managed savings campaigns going all the way into the 1990s, actually managed by uh, an organization that has its office within the Bank of Japan, it used to be called the Central Council for Savings Promotion, and then the Americans complained in the 1980s about too much Japanese savings, so they changed the name to uh, Promotion of Savings Information, uh, and now it's called the Financial Services Information Central Council. But it's, uh, I mean, it has changed its mission to some extent, but very active role of the Japanese government in sort of top-down savings campaigns. And, and again, very much in the post-war period, you see the completion of the gendered uh, division here very much focused on the housewife, who by the 1950s does actually uh, exist in great abundance in Japan. Um, and another, another aspect of Japanese savings that's interesting is that um, savings was seen as so important, as many of you know, to the, you know, the Japanese economic miracle of the early post-war decades, uh, that by the 1980s, savings promotion became seen as a very prominent part of the so-called Japanese model and was either emulated by other rising uh, Asian economies or by the uh, 1980s and uh, 1990s actively promoted by the Japanese government itself, um, particularly in places like Singapore and Malaysia. Um, but you saw in much of the rest of, of, of the rising Asian economies a similar emphasis and a not, not coincidental emphasis, clearly one that was emulating Japan, an emphasis on savings campaign, savings promotion as part of their developmental models. You see it most explicitly in the case of South Korea. Um, by the late 1960s, uh, the 
Koreans, even though they might not like to admit it, actually started their own central council for savings promotion within the Bank of Korea. And the evidence uh, actually talks about active cooperation between the Japanese and the Korean savings promoters. Again, if you mention that people in Korea today, they might disavow it. In fact, the Bank of Korea actually disavowed it to me at one point um, and, and made me actually change a cover of a volume I published that had a Korean savings a poster because they thought I had said too much about that there might actually be a Japanese influence in uh, post-colonial Korean development. Uh, but it's very clear. The historical evidence is very clear. So you get sort of Japanese-style savings campaigns in Korea. Uh, rest of Asia, China, again, not a story that's told very often, but um, probably the world's largest savings bank in terms of customers is in China today. Over 100 million households are customers of the Chinese Postal Savings Bank. Chinese Postal Savings Bank actually had to be restarted in the 1980s. Um, Chairman Mao had actually discontinued it in, after 1949. Uh, but when it was restarted, the Japanese postal savings system actually had a lot of cooperation and, and a lot of assistance that it gave to the Chinese postal savings system all the way into the 1990s. And in Singapore and many other places, you see a lot of Japanese influence and you see the s students lining up uh, they could be a Japanese model, it could be a British model, it could be anything because we've seen this is a very global idea, this idea of school savings. Well, let me move over to now talking about my own country. How does the United States uh, fit into this global story of savings promotion? And um, the book makes the argument that the United States doesn't fit very well. Um, in many ways, it's an outlier. In many ways, it diverges historically from many of these patterns of institutional promotion of saving. Um, let's start with say, some, one of the, the first institution, the savings bank. You know, how many savings banks are there in the United States? Well, in the early 19th century, uh, on the east coast of the United States, particularly um, from the New York, well, the mid-Atlantic area, we say around New York, Washington, D.C., and then up to New England, uh, there were a lot of English and European-style savings banks. Uh, the problem was that uh, America's a big country, but it's also a very uneven country, and these savings banks never really spread to much of the interior of the United States, particularly to the southern and western states. So as recently as 1910, just 100 years ago, um, most people living in the southern and western states had really no access to a savings institution that would take their small savings. There were commercial banks, but they would not deal with small savers. Uh, and you can actually look at an index of financial inclusion, 1910, um, that only about 10% of Americans had savings accounts, whereas at that time in Japan and the European countries, it would have been about 35 to 40%. So 10% in the U.S., 35 to 40% elsewhere. So the United States, most ordinary people, if they lived in the interior of the country, had very little access to uh, a savings institution. Now, you might think in a situation like that, why wouldn't the U.S. then adopt postal savings, which would solve that problem, which would bring access to people all over the country? Uh, well, interestingly enough, uh, the United States actually did have a postal savings system. I mentioned this to older Americans, and uh, they look at me quizzically because they, they couldn't even remember it, uh, and that's a problem. Uh, it had a postal savings system, but it was a very weak one. And the story is an interesting one because there actually are international people in America. You may not have met them, but there are. Uh, and there was this international group in the 1870s, it was right after the American Civil War, and they worked in Washington for the Postmaster General's um, uh, office. And they looked around at what was happening in Europe, and they even knew what was happening in Japan in the 1870s, and they decided, well, this British-style post office savings bank, which everybody else was interested in, Americans should be interested in it too. So these, in, these international officials uh, then found some friendly members of the U.S. Congress, and they got them, these members of Congress to introduce a postal savings bill in 1873, but nothing happened. And then they introduced it in 1874, nothing happened. And in 1875, nothing happened. They introduced it for the next 37 years. And in every case, Congress, um, I mean, they didn't even debate it. They simply sort of buried this bill. Nothing happened. Finally, in 1910, because there had been a big financial panic in the U.S. in 1907, 
Congress decided that they could pass a weak version of postal savings, and that might be helpful. So they passed this weak version, but it was made deliberately unattractive because the commercial banks were very powerful in the U.S., and they didn't want competition from a postal savings bank. So the U.S. postal savings system existed from 1910 to 1966, but it paid an interest rate of about 1% when banks were paying about 35 to 4%. Uh, it was not even established in a lot of rural post offices, so it didn't accomplish the goal of access. And in many other ways, it was made very unattractive, and it never really attracted a mass following. And finally, in 1966, Congress abolished the postal savings system, and most Americans didn't realize it had to be abolished because most Americans didn't realize it existed. It was that weak. So that's another divergence. What about school savings? Well, I showed this, um, this photo. This is from my home state of Minnesota in the biggest city, Minneapolis. Uh, there were school savings banks in America, um, and I show this image this is from the 1920s. I actually showed this in Heidelberg when I was there a year ago and in my German audience was, actually didn't believe it. And they said, well, how did they get Americans to line up in such an orderly way? <laughs> and I said, well, that's easy. They're, they're all German and Swedish immigrants. Okay. Um, but so, and that may actually be part of the explanation. Uh, because we had school savings banks, but like everything else in the United States, they were very uneven. Uh, they existed in some places, like Minneapolis, New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco. They existed where a school district wanted a, saving, a school savings bank, and they existed where a local savings bank existed to actually take the savings of the children. But because there were very few savings banks, um, we had very few school savings banks. And because our system of education is very decentralized, it was really up to the individual school district. So there again, we have some transnational influences, uh, but we don't have the comprehensiveness that we see in Japan and the European cases. Well, there is one era in which the United States does look like everybody else, and that's uh, to some extent World War I, but especially World War II. World War II is when the federal government of the United States seriously intervened to promote small saving. Uh, and they did it through something called the U.S. Savings Bond or the War Bond. Uh, these were very small bonds. You could buy them for about $17. They matured to about $25. So they were actually accessible uh, to ordinary people. And also, uh, it solved the problem of access because the savings bank could be sold to school children. Uh, it could be sold in the post office. It could be sold in the banks. It could be sold by the neighborhood volunteer woman who was the head of a war bonds campaign. So for the first time, we had a U.S savings instrument that was accessible to people and it could be sold at the workplace. Uh, so World War II and the decade or two after World War II sees the federal government intervening very much to promote saving. And interestingly enough, that's the period when Americans actually saved money. Um, during the war, but right in the decades after the war. And most Americans and actually most other people don't realize that in the several decades following World War II, the United States were, Americans weren't great savers, but they were pretty good savers. The household savings rate was between about 7 and 11% all the way into the 1980s. And then you can see that the, the U.S. savings rate just kind of falls off the cliff in the 1990s and early 2000s. By 2005, it's basically zero. It's a little over 1%. Now, how do we explain that? Well, one explanation is the United States, unlike Japan and unlike Europe, comes out of World War II in a wonderful position. It has suffered no war damage. The cities have not been bombed. Uh, it's not badly in debt at all because it, it could raise taxes and it found savings and it financed itself very easily. Moreover, uh, Americans had more income than they had before the war, which is unlike any other country, and they were ready to spend. And there were no need, really, for austerity campaigns. And so this led to a new type of thinking in post-war America where con increasingly consumption not saving and investment were seen as the engine of economic growth. In a sense, this emphasis on consumption starts 
even as early as World War II itself. There's already Americans are dreaming of all the consumption they're going to do after the war. And this too makes the Americans very different from the Japanese, obviously, but also very different from the Europeans. And if we're talking about what people were dreaming about in World War II, well, here's what British or Germans might have been dreaming about. Uh, this is a British war poster. Uh, the woman war worker is thinking, what can I do with my war uh, savings after the war? Well, her dreams of consumption are fairly modest. Um, a little garden, a hand-powered lawnmower. What were Americans dreaming about during the war? Well, this is from a school savings newspaper that went to, to tens of thousands of American school children. Uh, and it's put out by the federal government. And it shows what you can do with the, if you bought a savings bond in school in 1943, it would mature in 10 years. In 1953, what would the world of 1953 look like? What could you buy with it? Well, look at the center. You could buy your own private air car. You could buy telephone answering machines, television sets. In the right-hand corner, you could vacation in Madagascar and Newfoundland or Mexico City. In other words, Americans were already in World War II dreaming in technicolor, one might say. A very ambitious and although they never did get their private air cars, they got most of the rest of this stuff. Um, and so, so I, consumption really becomes iconic, becomes sort of culturally enshrined as, as the most important part of economic policy. So that too tends to diminish uh, propensity to save because spending becomes very, very important culturally. Another thing that makes America different is housing and housing policy. So the federal government may not have done that much to promote saving, but it does a lot to promote consumption and investment in housing. This starts in the 1930s, uh, but especially in the 1950s, the federal government uh, actually has a system where it guarantees banks to make low interest loans to people. Uh, they create the 25 to 30 year mortgage, which made it very easy for ordinary people to afford houses. And a new type of psychology was established among Americans by the 50s and 60s of massive home ownership and the idea that you save through housing, that you pay your mortgage off as you pay it off. That's a form of saving. And in a sense, it worked fairly well. And in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, this idea of saving through housing was fairly sustainable. Americans could save uh, in banks, but they could also save through housing. It was sober. It was sustainable. But then something happens from about the 1980s on when the American patterns of spending home ownership become unsustainable uh, and diminish not only saving but diminish the very financial stability of households. And I've just summed this up for you because we're, we're, we're just about out of time. But here are the things that happened in, in America since the 1980s. One was the creation of the mass credit card. Credit cards before 1980, believe it or not, were not accessible to most Americans. Affluent Americans had credit cards. Um, ordinary Americans did not. But as the result of a change in federal policy, actually a Supreme Court decision, credit card companies became deregulated in the 1980s. And they were able to charge any interest rate they wanted on the balance that people had when they didn't pay back their credit cards. Now, those of you from Germany, you might not quite understand the concept of not paying your credit card on time. But um, this is very, very American, and we're very proud of it. Um, but, but it was something that really only started in the 1980s as a result of the deregulation of the financial industry in this case. And increasingly, credit card companies realized they could make more and more money by targeting what they called subprime customers. These are subprime credit card customers. In other words, the more people couldn't pay their credit, bills, uh, credit card bills on time, the more money the credit card companies made, because they could charge 18%, 30%. So this is when the credit card became a mass commodity because it became such a profit-making institution for the, the banks and the credit card companies. A second thing that happened in the 1980s was called the home equity loan. Um, you might call it the second mortgage. It's when you borrow on what the price of your home is. In other words, your home equity, we'd say. Um, let's say your house went up 50%. You would go to the bank and say, well, I'd like, um, I'd like a loan against that, that 
price of my house, that home equity as the collateral. Uh, so that too was encouraged by a 1986 tax reform that made the home equity loan tax deductible. So that was a second form, and about 25% of Americans now have these home equity loans and they borrow tens of thousands of dollars against the perceived price of their home. And as home values went up in the 1990s, Americans borrowed more and more uh, because banks would actually tell people, why don't you borrow 110% on on the value of your house. So they had the regular first mortgage and they had the second mortgage, the home equity loan. So Americans really began to stop saving because money was so easy to get. It was so easy to borrow. Subprime mortgages I think you know about. And the last thing I should say is this massive explosion of credit was occurring at the very time that American society was becoming more and more unequal. Uh, since the 1970s, but particularly since about 2000, for about 90% of the American public, they have seen their incomes either stagnate or decline since about 2000. And this has happened just as the credit has exploded. So in a sense, those of you who are Europeans, you might think of it this way. Credit in the United States is America's welfare policy. So in Europe, when you get in trouble, you get social benefits from the state. In America, when you get in trouble, we give you more credit. And so this has been a real trap uh, for, for working Americans. Well, let me just close this out um, by saying the book ends with various recommendations on what America might do. And perhaps one of the strangest recommendations I made is that America might consider actually reintroducing postal savings. And actually last week on Tuesday, I went to Washington and I spoke to US congressional staffers who write legislation. And I tried to make the argument for postal savings. It's kind of like a turning Japanese moment. Um, very strange, but here's the situation we have in America today. The banks really won't serve lower income customers. About 25% of lower income people in America are unbanked. They have no bank account whatsoever, and many more are underbanked. In other words, the banks fleece them. They charge them huge fees, huge minimum balances. So I proposed postal savings to actually do two things. One was to use the post office um, as it, it was used in Japan and elsewhere to actually expand financial access and financial inclusion because a U.S. government agency clearly would serve the needs of lower income people better. And the second reason was to actually save the U.S. post office. Because in Congress now, the U.S. Post Office may disappear within the year because it's been made kind of a semi-private corporation that has to make money. And yet, it is prevented by law from engaging in any postal financial services. So I thought this might kill two birds with one stone. Thank you very much.